All right, well, good morning, Salem. Good to see you guys uh, here uh, this morning. I'll just add my welcome uh, to the welcomes that's already been said, if you're joining us in person or on online. Just so glad you guys are here. If, uh, if we have never uh, gotten the chance to meet, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. So we'd love the, the opportunity to, to meet you. So um, how many of you guys um, or gals uh, like to mow? Okay, cool. So I'm not alone. I mean, I, I love mowing. This is something that, I, for whatever reason, I think I, what I've boiled down to is that uh, I've realized how uh, messy life and ministry is, and mowing allows me to leave straight lines, um, you know, in life. And so um, part of my, my recent uh, goal has actually, uh, and I just finished this week, I've made it to the end of my block, both directions, edging the sidewalk, just because... Uh, because in part, I want to serve people, in part, because it just makes me feel better in, in, inside my own heart for whatever reason. So um, I, I like mowing, um, and, uh, and so I know that you're not supposed to do this, um, but, uh, but I oftentimes will listen to music as I do it. And so as I was prepping for this week, I, I wanted to um, even just kind of be ruminating. You know, I, I, you heard us sing. The first two songs were, were very much key themes were love. And what Andrew stated, just talking about love as we're entering into that concept, which is so such a fundamental element, obviously, of the gospel and who Jesus is and, and why he came to earth. Um, and so as I was thinking, I thought, man, what, if I, what, is, what does culture say about love? And we're not going to go into this big, massive, um, you know, kind of, you know, depiction of what that really is. But as I was, as I was thinking about mowing, is that I, you know, I get my headphones in and I start my mower and my trimmer and I start going, who do I turn to other than Tay Swift? How many of you know Taylor Swift? Yeah, a few, okay, less than the first service, crud, okay. Um, Taylor Swift is, um, this is pop culture, people, okay. Um, Taylor Swift is a young gal who, I'm not even sure if she's pop or country, she's somewhere in between, um, and she is just a brilliant writer of a musician, um, and, uh, and so here I pop in my headphones and I start to listen, and her Apple playlist is like, uh, with gajillion songs, um, and like 99% of those are about love, um, interestingly. And so here I am just listening and processing to, to what Taylor Swift has to say about love, and, and the reality is that all of her songs are pretty, yes, like, if you, if you knew as this 41-year-old guy who's like trimming and edging his sidewalk was listening to Taylor Swift, what would you say? Um, but as I'm doing this, as I'm processing, um, you know, everything that she's saying, which, by the way, you know, she has some really good songs and she has some not good songs, so I'm not condoning, uh, not condoning, excuse me, not condoning that. But, but here the reality is as I'm processing her. I'm going, how is it that a person can, can write 99% of their songs about the exact same topic and still sell massive albums? Like, how do you do this? Like, how, how is it you can constantly talk about love and sing about love and still just sell out all of your albums? It's pretty, pretty incredible. So um, as I think about this, as I kind of come back to, let's see if this one works here. So first service, I opened this up and there was no marker in it. So um, what makes Taylor Swift, I think, so, so clever and brilliant is that if at the center of this is this concept of idea of love, what she's doing is that she's actually, she's inviting and talking to different audiences and people, um, 
you know, from all around the world, all different ages, you know, all of these different backgrounds and, you know, socioeconomic status and race and gender and sexual preference, all of these things. And she's talking about love and why she can sell so many albums is because she allows each of those stories to enter in to her songs. And it's brilliant because then she's capturing an entire world's worth of people, right, by talking about the same kind of love. Now, here's the deal. In order for her to be able to do this, she has to define love a hundred different ways, which makes her views on love wildly unreliable. Okay? But... You know, but we're going to learn something from this here in, in, in a little bit. So push this on pause for a second because we've been in this series uh, throughout the summer and we're wrapping this up today. So if you're jumping in for the first time, it's kind of a weird place to jump in, but we're finishing Proverbs um, and, uh, and it starts with, we'll just do this kind of recap. We'll start with chapters one through nine. Uh, and it's this father uh, kind of relaying information to his son. So there's this relational transfer of information, of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding uh, to the son. Um, and really, it's kind of, these first nine chapters is really rooted in kind of this idea of what is wisdom. Uh, and in the Old Testament, the word for wisdom is chokmah. And chokmah is something that is accessible and available to every, every single human being. It's, it's kind of like this part of God's creation and design. It's woven into the fabric of, of, of the world and us as human beings. And it's accessible to every single person. And it helps us to navigate through the complexities and through the difficulties of life because life is not a straight line. It's just filled with turns. And so what we find in these first nine chapters, though, is that these two kind of pathways emerge. And they're both rooted in this concept of more. We want more of something. We desire more because we are designed for more. We are designed for more of God. And yet, oftentimes what we do is we desire more of the world. And so these two things are in tension throughout the book. So as we transfer kind of from these first nine chapters to the second portion, then what happens is he's talking about the wisdom in the midst of of life, right? Got my E too early, life, right? And so you look at this and you read all of these and it's kind of like this one after another and, and some of them are connected and some of them are not connected and, and it kind of feels like you're just reading this hodgepodge of things. But the reality is, is there's this theme that goes through and he, what he's doing is he's helping us understand that as life takes its twists and turns, right, there are proverbs, these wisdom elements, which are kind of like these tiny, small, packed, powerful parables that help us wrestle through how do we actually live life wisely in the midst of these things. And so what we've talked about this summer, we've looked at uh, how we spend our money, we've looked at how we use our mouth, we've talked about the movies that we watch, the ministry as our workplace, all uh, in our marriage, all these different elements. How do I live wisely? Okay, so as we come to, though, the end of the book, right, we come to the end of the book, and it's just kind of this, this weird, bizarre thing, right, because you go, how does this book 
end. Every book needs a conclusion. So as it's nearing the end, how do we expect that this thing is actually uh, going to end? And you would think that because it's a book on wisdom, you would think that if you're accumulating and memorizing and remembering all of these different knowledge and understanding tidbits, you would think that once you get to the end, we would enter into this place where we say, aha, I am wise. Right? I have arrived, I have wisdom, I have knowledge, I have understanding, I have learning, I have these things, and yet what we find is actually not what we expect. We find a man who says something very different. He says, I have not learned wisdom, I have not learned all of this stuff, right? And it's kind of a bizarre way to end the book, and we'll talk about that. But if we come back over here and we kind of reconvert our Taylor Swift model into Proverbs, what makes this so powerful at the end of the book, and this is what's so brilliant, is that the author is going to take the things like money, he's going to take our you know, mouth, like how we use our mouth, he's going to talk about our marriage, like that's a diamond ring, you know? Like he's taking all of these different angles, all these different tough and, and tiresome and difficult and challenging life circumstances from the book, and he's going to point them to an even deeper and greater reality, right? He's pointing us towards, actually, this idea that there is possible that you can have a relationship with the creator himself that we are in this searching and this seeking and this quest as mankind for God ultimately himself. And that's what makes this, this chapter, in chapter 30, really uh, ultimately so, so powerful. So as we jump from, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, um, I invite you to jump to uh, chapter 30 uh, in, in your Bible, if you've got one, uh, in, in Proverbs. Uh, in, and if you have one, while you're turning there, let me just say this. It's not something I would normally say. Um, I think, you know, as I, I was not really fully aware as I opened this passage and really started studying it that, that there are some verses in here that are some of the most difficult and challenging verses to interpret and to understand. Um, and so the reality is, is that as a human being, that I can always get this wrong. And so I'm going to do my best to tell you what I think it's saying, okay? And I'm going to do my absolute best then to keep it simple for us as we dive into and as we finish the book uh, in Proverbs in chapter 30. So here's where we start in chapter 30, verse 1, okay? The words of Agur, son of Jacah, an oracle, right? Already we see some things that are very different than the rest of the book that we've been in. Uh, and here's what he says. He says, the man declares, okay? Um, I'm just going to push pause for a second, okay? So Agur, we have no clue who this guy is. I hope that's helpful for you. We don't know. This is the only time he's mentioned in the entire Bible. Uh, translated, it just really means a sojourner. So maybe he's Jewish, maybe he's not. We're not really sure. It's possible that he's not raised in, in this culture. And so his, his, his discovery of Yahweh uh, and God the Creator has been a process. We're not really sure. So who is this guy? Who is he talking to? Is a difficult kind of a scenario to, to really pinpoint. But, but here we know is that the book starts with Solomon and it ends with this guy named Agur. And I'll tell you why I think that that's true later, okay? So Agur is going to say something, and he starts with this idea of the man declares. Now, throughout the rest of the, throughout the, rest of the verses, you'll, you'll see the personal pronoun I, where he seems like he's talking about me, where he says, I, Agur, 
The reality is that this could very much well be an autobiographical confession where he says, hey, my name is Agar, nice to meet you, here's my struggles. Okay, that's very much possible. But I also think that there's something deeper and bigger at play here because as he starts his sentence, he doesn't start with I, he starts with the man which is a very general and kind of broad umbrella of a category. And so what I think that he's doing is that he's going to take a deep dive into humanity. He's setting up this character that represents, or as he calls him, the man, that, that represents humanity uh, in, in its collection, right, in its, in its totality, right? And so he's going to expose, as he talks, he's going to expose uh, the predicament or the dilemma of man Mankind. And ultimately, at the end of the book, when we think that he should have arrived, what he's actually going to say is that man, all of men, are in this process of searching for something. This isn't over, right? They're searching for something uh, in, in life, right? That's what this man is going to do. And so part of what he's doing is that is he knows that the entire book, really most of the book, has to deal with like wisdom and circumstances, right? And how do, we, how do we live life from bend to bend? And as we think about the difficulty in our marriage, we think about the financial struggles that we have, as we think about whatever, right? What's brilliant is he's taking all of that, and then he's going to, he's going to help us understand that, but he's going to invite us into a relationship with Yahweh himself. Because at the end of every day, it's not just the ins and outs of life that me as a human is concerned about. As humans, we have these bigger picture things that, that kind of overshadow all of life's circumstances, don't we? And it's who am I? Where do I come from? Who's my creator? Why do I exist? How does God bring and fit all of this ultimately together. And so here's what I think the author is doing, what Agar is doing, as he's saying, it starts with wisdom. If wisdom is an attribute of God, which why the book begins with the fear of the Lord, because if the attribute is God alone, the only way that we have access to wisdom or true wisdom is through the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. And if, and if chokmah is an attribute of God himself, and if mankind is searching for, in this quest to discover and to learn and to understand life as represented in wisdom, we're not just searching for wisdom, we're actually searching for what? God, because it's his attribute. And so he's inviting us into this, in this brilliant way, he's inviting us into relationship. And so here's the big idea I just want to share with you um, this morning, right? Is this, is that wisdom is about who you know more than what you know. It's about who you know more than what you know. And we'll see that kind of get, kind of get relayed as we continue to go uh, through this, this text, okay? So what is the man going to declare, right? So we know that these, he's gonna push us towards this relationship with Yahweh, um, but what does the man declare? In verse, in verse one, it says, the man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now, no show of hands, but how many of you feel tired and weary and worn out this morning? 
and you're like, maybe, maybe life was really good for you this summer, and it was super relaxing, and you're like, man, like this was, it was so refreshing for me, but there's a piece of you. Maybe you're a student, and you're getting ready to go back to school, and you know that life's going to be crazy and chaotic for you. Maybe you're a parent of a kid who's going to do that, right? Maybe, whatever it is, maybe it's these life struggles, there's addictions, there's just, just deep struggles inside of us, right? Maybe there's something going on in our marriage, maybe we have these financial struggles, right? And at the end of this, we come to it, right? And what we find is we go, man, like, I'm just weary. God, I'm tired and I am worn out. I mean, if you feel that way this morning, just tired and worn out. Because what he's doing as an author is that he's reminding us as readers that we have physical limitations, right? And, and as he talks about it in a wisdom sense, what he's doing is that he's saying that in our quest for wisdom, which is ultimately a quest for God himself, in our quest for wisdom, we're actually going to end up failing over and over if it's from within myself, Right? In this quest for wisdom, it's kind of this, this maybe this, this anti-enlightenment thing, right? Because the enlightenment came and it was like we can discern and discover the way the whole world works. And yet what the author is saying is that there are things within humanity that are not within ourselves to know. Now, we know that there are things like all of creation that exist and those things point us to the fact that God exists. And so for you and for me and collectively, we have no excuse to not believe that God is real, okay? But to truly know God, which is true wisdom, there is need for divine revelation, right? There's need for God to, to, to open up and to show himself and to reveal himself to people. And so as an author, he's saying to be wise in this world is to ultimately understand your depravity and your limitations. That's where wisdom is, it's not in necessarily your accumulation of wisdom, it's to know, it starts with how little we actually can really know, ultimately, about who God is, apart from his divine you know, revelation. And so few people find wisdom, true wisdom in this life, because it's so counterintuitive, it's opposite to our very nature. Right? And so in this searching, this quest for life and for wisdom, right, which is ultimately a quest for God, humanity, or as, as the author talks about, it, the man gets to this place and he says, man, I'm just, I'm tired. I've got, I'm at the end of my rope here. I've got nothing left, right? I'm, I'm, I'm worn out, I'm tired, and I'm weary. On top of that, the author calls himself kind of a, a naughty word. He, he says this in verse, um, in verse two. He says, surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Okay? So if we come back over here. To our, to our board, right? So part of what he's doing is that he's acknowledging that God is holy. He is set apart, right, uh, from, from humanity. He is perfect, uh, amazing. He is, he is uh, just awesome, obviously, in, in all that he is, right? Um, and so here, though, you also have kind of below him, you know, you've got mankind, right? Um, 
You know, you've got man, and here's man, and man is created uh, in a really neat way to reflect the image of God. So he's kind of the apex of the pinnacle of creation this way, right, in that he reflects the image of God. And yet, down here, what he's also, as an author, he's also acknowledging, you know, that there are these, you know, other things called animals. That's a, that's a dog, a deer, something, that's a really big cat, whatever, whatever you want it to be. Um, here, you can make it long legs, it's now it's a giraffe, okay? So, there are animals and there is man, right? And so what he's doing as an author is that when he calls himself stupid, the word actually more, kind of more literal is the idea of brutish. Well, that's not helpful. What does brutish mean, right? He kind of identifies this, this space between man and animals. And what he says is in, in a kind of a self-deprecating way, he says, I don't have the ability to discern, right? In the same way an animal wouldn't. I don't have the ability to discern the things that I want to know. So here's him. He's down here at the bottom. And it's not false humility, which, by the way, as an author, he's not dumb. He's not stupid. He's actually incredibly brilliant. So what he's doing is he's using hyperbole to show and demonstrate, to demonstrate that, that there is a God who is up here, and he longs and wants to be in this space. He wants to be in this space, okay? So if we come back, there's kind of this key, these key words here in the text. If you look at these three words, um, understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. And if you were to go, okay, so like where, do, where else have I seen these before? If you were to go back to the very beginning of Proverbs, you would find that a Solomon enters in and he's setting up this kind of father-son scenario. He says these words. He says, this as a father are the three things that I am going to impart to you. I'm going to impart understanding, I'm going to impart wisdom, and I'm going to impart knowledge. This is, this is what Solomon says that he's going to give. That's at the beginning of the book, right? That's at the beginning of the book. But then you come to the end of the book, and what happens? You've shifted from Solomon to Agur, and, and all of a sudden, you would think that, you know, Agur's like, hey, I've got it. My name's Agur. Here's, you know, I... I got it. I figured it out. I'm wise. And yet he stands up and says, hey, my name is Agur. Um, I have not learned understanding. I have not learned wisdom, and I have not learned knowledge. You know, that's not what I expect. Right? That's not what we expect from this thing to happen. Right? And so here's the, here's the negative. There's a negative and there's a positive here. The negative is that Agur, in this, in this space, has, to has failed, and mankind has failed to learn that which we need to learn. Okay? That's the failure. But in that, as he says, I don't know, when I don't have these things, there is this, this beautiful piece in the midst of it where the Hebrew resonates the sense of humility. And he says, when he says, I don't know it, he's expressing this humbleness. And it's also expressing a desire because what he longs for as this guy, as he places himself here, what he longs for is to be right here in relationship with Yahweh, to know God, to be with God. And so the positive here is that what the author is going to tell us here in a little bit is that this type of a relationship is actually possible actually possible. And so in these next verses, he's going to point us to this. He's going to use a set of rhetorical questions in verse 4. Look at this. He says, who has ascended to heaven, which by the way, this sounds a lot like what you'll see in Job, this God's kind of debate with Job. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? 
Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Right? Who's done that? Have you done that? No. Have I done that? No. Who? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? And then he ends with this. He says, surely you know. He's pointing to the fact that hardwired inside of us is this, this longing to know that Yahweh is the answer to this question. Surely you know. Who is it? Only Yahweh, only the creator of the universe can do this. And and the, the relationship we can have with this is through humility is where it starts. I love that in this space, there's, there's a vertical axis and there's a horizontal axis, you know? So he talks, about, he talks about the heavens, he talks about the earth, and then he talks about from the ends of the earth. So you've got vertical and horizontal. Now, in the Old Testament times, um, that was still a pretty big space, <laughs> wasn't it? Um, right? Like, you, like, they had this pretty firm grip that the cosmos was created by God and that that cosmos was bigger than us, and yet men still tried to build a tower with rocks, to get to heaven. And you're like, man, if you had the Hubble telescope, you would realize how, how absurd of a thing you're doing. Because we learn every day that more like science shows us how big the, 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 the expanse of the universe is. The, 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 the millions or hundreds of millions of galaxies and the known universe, each with a billion trillion stars, and you go, man, like, like the, the, the space in which we live is so massive, and yet you tried to build a tower. It's not going to work. It's not going to work to get you to God, right? And this is this unbridgeable distance, and it's not just physically, it's spiritually. And so what the author is saying is that in our quest for wisdom and for knowledge, which is actually a quest for God himself, is this unfathomable, uncrossable bridge for you and me. We can't know what we need to know about him unless he shows up and does that for us. I want you to look at these. Notice how it says who and what. Who, 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 and what is his name. This is is so good. If you're writing things down, write this down, because this is true. By using the words who and what and not how. It doesn't say how you did it. It says who. And what is his name? Because it's relationship. It's not, about the, it's not about the how. He says by using who and what and not how. Here's what happens is that he radically transforms our crisis of inability to know wisdom into a crisis to know God himself. That's so powerful. It's not a crisis of knowledge. It's not a crisis of wisdom. It's a crisis of relationship. That's what he's pointing us toward because God is a God who makes the inaccessible things accessible and the impossible things possible and the hidden things made known and he takes despair and he offers hope and we're reminded that this big idea that wisdom is about who you know more than what you know. Knowledge is incredibly important but when it comes to wisdom, it's more about who you know than what you know. 
You see, true wisdom is found in this, this personal relationship with Yahweh. And what he's going to do is he's going to take a weary person who's totally worn out, at the, just at their wit's end, nothing left, and he's going to make them strong and able through his word. Look at this. Look at verse 5. It says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You see, he says, I don't want to be a liar. I want to be a person who speaks truth, right? And that's, this, is, this is where I find that every single thing that I need to know about who God is, right, and what a relationship with him is about, I find right here in God's word. And so, so, so often we look at this and we find this like this, this self-help tool is something to be mastered, right, and just, just memorized and obeyed, right? And yet this is a story about who God is, first and foremost, as the main character about who he is, what he's doing to make the world right in and through Jesus Christ. That's the story. That's the story. And even though the Bible wasn't written to us, it was written for us. And it is purposeful and useful for teaching, correcting, training, righteousness, everything you could possibly need to know about who God is right now, right here in a relationship is in God's word. Right? And so he's going to take weary people and he's going to make them strong. Right? And what the author says is that as you begin to learn about who God is, he says there's this natural response that's going to come from you, this wish, this will, this desire. In verse 7, he says this, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Okay, just, just, just know that when he says I ask of you in the English, in the Hebrew, this is actually an imperative, which means that he's demanding something of God. And he put a timestamp on it and he says, by the time I die, this is what I need from you. Okay, which is interesting, though, because the two things that he's going to ask for are the need for God to show up and do something in his life. These are not things he can do on his own. There's, there's a need for divine help in these things. Here's what he says, first thing. He says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Why? It goes right back to verse 6. Because verse 6 talks about adding to his words, unless he rebuke you and you be found to be a liar. So what he says is, I want to be a truth teller. I don't, I don't want to be a person who lies. I don't want to be a person who makes things up. I don't want to be a person who adds to these or takes away from this because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And he says, I want to point people to the ultimate thing, to the ultimate person, and to the ultimate truth found in God's word. I don't want to be a liar. That's what he says. But he also says this, he says, remove far from me, or excuse me, he says, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. When I was a freshman in college, uh, or was coming out of high school, going to college, I started at the University of Nebraska, in Lincoln, and if you're a college student, this might resonate with you. Um, and so there's a city campus, and then there was an east campus. The east campus um, was the agricultural side, and so I went there because I had planned on being a horticulture major because I wanted to design uh, golf courses, which was a huge, massive mistake in my life. As soon as they said, learn every plant there is in the known world in, in Latin, I was like, I'm out, okay? Um, 
So we live and learn, right? And so, but here I am on East Campus in this space, and here was something that was really unique, is that they had this cafe, right? And people would even come from city campus to eat at our cafe, because for breakfast and lunch, you could go to the grill, and you could order whatever you wanted. And it was awesome. I was like, I'm going to take a burger. Nope, chicken. No, burger. Actually, double burger with extra bacon, extra cheese, extra whatever you want. And they're like, great, here you go. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. This is so good, right? Not to mention, like, in addition, they had this massive refrigerator that was filled with Gatorades and, like, Mountain Dew, like Pepsi. And I just loved Mountain Dew at the time, still do. So they're in this, and the rule was you could take two, right? Um, and you could put them on a tray, but you could also get a fountain drink. And they didn't care if you drank the fountain drink and then took the Mountain Dews home. So what you do is you take the Mountain Dews back to your to your refrigerator in your room, and you just stock your fridge. Can I tell you that freshman 20 pounds took about two weeks? <laughs> it was so fast. I went from like 180-pound athletic guy to ugh all the time. I was perpetually full. Perpetually full. And you see, what the author is doing here is what he's saying is that if you have too much in life, you will get to a spot where you are full and you will say, who's God? I don't need him because I have everything that I could have ever wanted. The opposite is also true. You might have too little and then you're tempted to steal right? And we reminded that there's these two narratives in the world, and both are for more, right? We desire more because we're designed for more, whether we want more of God or more of the world. But here's the deal. As this book comes to a conclusion, the author is driving into us a sense of urgency, and it's an urgency of relationship because there's a bigger proverbial picture that's happening here in this book. If you remember, the beginning of the book starts with Solomon, and it ends with Agur, Solomon, in the summary, God says, what do you want? Wisdom, do you want wealth, power? What do you want? And he goes, I'll take wisdom. And God, in all of his graciousness, says, great, here's everything. Because you ask for wisdom, you can have everything. And, and he was the wisest man to ever walk the planet. But if you look in 1 Kings chapter 11, what you will find is at the end of his life, though he started with understanding, with wisdom, and with knowledge, at the end, he surrendered his life to the basic things of humanity, sex, wealth, and power. And that's what his life was ultimately about. You see, Solomon got to a point where he was full, and he forgot and missed the very thing that wisdom is about, a relationship with his creator. Do you see that? Do you hear that? By the way, he had so many wives and concubines that he could have like, like someone to sleep with for like three years. How does Proverbs end? Proverbs 31, which is about who? Is it about a thousand women to meet your needs? No, it's about one woman who's the godly, beautiful helper. And you begin to wonder, because this is the way that marriage is designed. This is the way that God wanted it for Solomon. And you begin to wonder, gosh, is the end of this book actually an indictment against Solomon for starting so well and finishing so poorly? Because he was full and said, who is God? And we're reminded that 
wisdom and knowledge can be overrun by the depravity of the human heart. And here's my question for you this morning that I just want you to ponder. Guys and gals, ladies and gentlemen, if the wisest man on earth to ever live failed, what chance do you and I have? The man who had all of the wisdom, the wisest man to ever walk the earth, if he failed, what chance do you and I have? This is where we finally end and we say, this is about how we shift to God's wisdom because the answer is we have no chance. We have zero chance. But what the author is reminding us and he's pointing us towards is that wisdom isn't about what you know, it's more about who you know. And it's this beautiful invitation to know God. And so as Agur ends the book as this guy that kind of looks back on Solomon and says, you started well, but you finished really poorly. He's talking about wisdom. And what he says is that, is that this pursuit and quest of wisdom is not so much about knowledge as much as it is about a, a, a relationship. It's a wisdom of relationship. And it's this brilliant invitation to know God. I want to read this to you as we finish and, and then finish with one song. It's from 1 Corinthians. And, and here's why this is so important. Because we have zero chance. We have zero chance when it comes to pursuing things on our own and we come back to this over and over and over again and we draw this on the board because it's the reminder of the person and the life and the works of Jesus Christ who says on your own you have zero chance but me with me you have every chance because there is life, there's forgiveness of sins, there is satisfaction in this world. The things that you long for most is not the world, but it is me. He says, this is who I am and I'm here, I'm right here. If you are weary, if you are worn, if you are tired, right, if you feel brutish in this place, just know that Jesus says, man, this is me, I'm right here. And as we think about wisdom, as we wrap this up, here are these words. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach save those who believe. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us a wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written that the one who boasts boast in the Lord Heavenly Father 
Lord, as we wrap up and finish our time this morning with a song, and as we, as we turn to, cel- to celebrate you, Lord, I don't, I don't know where we're at this morning and where each of us and as individuals and collectively, if there's any weariness, if there's any worn outness, if there is any of the self-deprecation that says, I am too brutish of a man to understand these things, but I pray that, that we would know and that we would come to the God who makes the impossible things possible because you take weary and worn out brutish people and make us strong and capable through your word. Lord, and it's not a, as we turn to this love, it's not a love that is, that is wildly unreliable like pop's culture sings, but it is a love that is concrete and permanent because it has been demonstrated and perfected in the person and the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that as we finish the series, knowing that there are these two narratives at play, more of God and more of the world, Lord, I pray that our heart's desire would be that we want to be with you more than ever getting things from you, lest we be full and like Solomon would say, who is the Lord? Why do I need him? And so, Lord, I pray that as we leave this morning, as we finish and worship, that we, as we enter into the world, that our weakness and our humility would shame the strong, not in a guilt way, but in a way that points the world to Jesus, because it's about who we know more than what we know. Amen.